So we're in our series, Need to Know, and we're going to hit a really heavy topic today. Because it's such a heavy topic, we're going to be talking about homosexuality, same-sex marriage, and the end times and how that ties in scripturally. Uh, there may be some parents, this is going to be PG, everything's going to be appropriate and what we say, don't put that up. I, I approve that message, but <laughs> that's like explicit. Nothing's going to be explicit except the truth. But you may not be comfortable, it's going to be totally PG, but you may not be comfortable with a junior high or high school student maybe hearing some of the information that we're going to be covering. And so we have an exciting opportunity for junior high, high school students to be in the lower floor uh, right now. So they, they can be dismissed there. Of course, we have kids' place also. All right. You ready? Turn to your neighbor and say, are you ready? Go on, tell them. Are you ready? All right. Ready or not? Ready or not? Here we go. The first Super Bowl occurred in 1967. A lot has changed since 1967. Uh, in 1967, the end of the year closed, the Dow Jones closed at 905. Lots changed. The average cost of a new house in 1967 was $14,250. I wish I had a few of those for investments. The average income per year was $7,300. The average uh, monthly rent was $125 in 1967. Gas was 33 cents per gallon, the very first Super Bowl, 1967. The average cost of a new car was $2,750. A movie ticket was $1.25, and a Super Bowl ticket topped out at $12. Lots changed since the first Super Bowl was played. In 1967, the divorce rate was only 26% in our country. Now, in some places, it's over 50%. A lot's changed since that first Super Bowl. Since that first Super Bowl, we have gone from the Marlboro Man to the Maybelline Man in one generation. I was shocked, but I shouldn't be any longer. When I looked in the news and Esquire magazine, which was the official men's magazine for men's fashion for decades, and they talked about how masculinity is now officially dead because now makeup, the makeup industry is targeting men because it's becoming ever increasingly popular for men to wear makeup. A lot's changed in a generation from 1967 from the very first Super Bowl until today. So in our message today, we're going to talk about the end times, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, and how that ties in to signs that we're living in the last days. These topics need to be addressed in churches throughout our country and around the world because, if I may quote the great reformer Martin Luther, he made it plain in his day that to fight the spiritual battle at any point other than where the spiritual battles of your day are being fought is to lose the battle. If I could quote him directly, he said, where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And you're to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. And all the forces of darkness have focused themselves on this one primary issue. Satan's last stand in the ultimate assault and attack and death 
of marriage in the world today. Because of what Martin Luther said, I believe that many churches are guilty of spiritual malpractice because they are avoiding addressing the tough issues that is confronting us as the people of God first and foremost and as fellow Americans. Look at what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 24 when he was talking about the end of the world, answering questions that his disciples asked him. One of the signs, he said, in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will it be the coming of the Son of Man. What were the days of Noah like? Well, according to Dr. Jeffrey Stainover, who holds an MD from Princeton and doctorates from Yale and MIT and Harvard, he referenced the Babylonian Talmud. The Talmud were religious writings of the Jewish rabbis a thousand years before Christ. Now, we can't substantiate this biblically, but based on these commentaries, because basically the Talmud was the commentary that Jewish rabbis wrote concerning the oral Torah and then later the written Torah. They expounded upon the transferring of God's revelation knowledge, and first it came orally before it ever was, was written down. And according to these rabbis that lived thousands and thousands of years ago, there was only one other time in history where same-sex marriage was certified and sanctioned, not during the time of the Grecians or the Romans or, or the Babylonian Empire, but during the days of Noah. During the days of Noah, according to Jewish tradition and history, same-sex marriage, the only other time in the history of the world from, from now till then that it had occurred, was sanctioned and certificates were given in marriage. It was because of that, shortly after that, that's the final sign in the death of a civilization when marriage is assaulted at that level and homosexuality is not just accepted and celebrated but endorsed and promoted by way of marriage unions, that that was the last sign before the great flood came in, according to Jew Jewish tradition and the writings of these rabbis. And Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. But he also said, in another section of Scripture, as it was in the days of Lot. Well, who was Lot? Well, Lot was the nephew of, of Abraham, and Lot lived in a place called Sodom. Where did Sodom come from? Well, when Noah landed in the new world after the flood, he and his three sons, their wives, his wife, they got off that, that, the ark to establish a new world. And something happened. Noah got drunk in, in Genesis chapter 9, and many biblical scholars and many commentaries, and it's kind of a hard pill to swallow, but something happened. He got drunk, and he passed out, and he was naked. One of his sons went in, and then he told his other, he told his other brothers that their father was drunk and, and naked, and they walked in backwards, and they covered their father's nakedness. You could read about this in Genesis chapter 9. The Bible says something peculiar, that when Moses, when Noah woke up, and he realized what had been done, what his son had done. 
that he cursed not Ham, but Ham's descendants, Ham's son, Canaan, and the Canaanite nations. And what we see, fast forward, Genesis 19, the Canaanites occupied that area in the valley known as Sodom and Gomorrah. And the primary sin that eventually brought the judgment of God upon Sodom and Gomorrah was this very sin. That is politically incorrect to even talk about. And you would be banned from TV, you would be banned from radio, you would be banned from business, you would be banned from politics, you would be banned from anything. If you even make this association that homosexuality is a deviant perversion of God's beautiful design of our human sexuality, which is a gift from God, it's a distortion of that. And because of that sin, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. We know that for certain biblically, but the days of Noah, we're assuming that based on the writings of these ancient rabbis. I believe the final sign that is the indication that the coming of Christ is near is what happened in June of 2015 when same-sex marriage was officially made the law of the land by a 5-4 vote on the Supreme Court. I believe that was the final sign that said uh, the American civilization as we know it is doomed unless, unless we repent and turn back to God wholeheartedly. But here's the good news. Even if this is the beginning of the end, notice God's grace in the time of Noah. It took Noah 120 years to build the ark, and for 120 years he preached righteousness. And so God is long-suffering and patient. So whether our time is 10 years or 100 plus years, God is giving people enough time to hear the truth, the, the preaching of righteousness, that they might respond and turn to him wholeheartedly. Now we know that homosexuality has always existed. It's been a part of the human condition really from the very beginning. If you want to trace it all the way back to where many biblical scholars do of what occurred, something occurred in Genesis uh, chapter 9. But God has made it very clear in Scripture, and in your notes I gave you the 12 crucial passages in the Bible that lists where God clearly, unequivocally condemns the sin of homosexuality. That will never change, no matter what justices say or politicians or priests or pastors or psychiatrists or psychologists, no matter what anyone says, it will never change God's definition of what sin is and what it isn't. But God is long-suffering. But think about this. Fifty years ago, homosexuality was illegal throughout the entire world, just 50 years ago. It was decriminalized in Switzerland in 1938. But in the space of half a century, this tiny minority, 1 to 3% of the population, are practicing homosexuals. In just 50 years, 1 to 3% of the population has become a global political powerhouse around the world today. The homosexual movement in 50 years has accomplished what Islam, Marxism, socialism, communism, and the Church of Jesus Christ has not been able to achieve in the same amount of time. The speed, the breadth, and the reach of their political power and their political influence in the world is mind-boggling. It could only have advanced 
this far, this fast, with the help of the wicked one himself. Why? If you study history, if you look at the days of Noah, if you look at what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, and you look very specifically at what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, when a people become reprobate and are finally cast out by God, it's when they do that which is unseemly, men with men and women with women. This one sin. You say, well, Pastor Carl, all sin's the same, and there's really no difference between sin. My friend, there is. Very clearly there is. Sin is all, all sin is sin and disobedience to God and missing the mark of, of God's best for our life. But not all sin is the same. Jesus stood before Pilate and he said, those that have given me over to you are guilty of the greater sin. The Bible does speak of greater sins. In uh, the book of Ezekiel, God was showing the abominations and the sin and the depth of wickedness that the people of God had fallen into that were being committed in the very house of God, in the very temple. And he said, the Holy Spirit said, now come with me and I'll show you greater abominations. Come with me now into this room and I'll show you even greater abominations. So the Bible is very clear on what is what we would define as natural sin, which is heterosexual sin, and that will also be judged by God, and that which is unseemly, or as the Bible calls it, against nature and nature's God. We'll talk about why that is here in just a moment. Now, what is marriage? Marriage is such an incredible, beautiful gift that God's given to the human race. And whenever God gives something of such glory and beauty, He defends it and He protects it and He's jealous over it. Marriage is more than a contract. It's more than a, a license. It's more than a piece of paper that you get from the county clerk and, and, then a, and a priest or a pastor or, or a judge signs it and says, now we are married. Marriage, according to the Bible, is a sacrament. It is a sacred holy union and a holy institution. And what makes it so special to God is that marriage in the Bible is described by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. It describes the union that God has with his people, the, the church, through Jesus Christ. It's the great mystery. And marriage models that. The intimacy and the love and the bond and the covenant and the union between one man and one woman in a, in a monogamous uh, heterosexual relationship, that typifies the relationship that God through Christ has with his people. So you know this, you know that whatever God loves, the day of the devil hates. Whatever becomes the apple of God's eye, whatever is precious to God and God is jealous over, the devil will attack and the devil will assault. And he did that from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. So what is, what is marriage? Well, marriage is defined this way in the book of, of Genesis, chapter 2, when God uh, describes to us, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall become, say it with me, one flesh. That's an odd statement on the surface. And it's used over and over again. It's used by Jesus in the Gospels. It's used by the Apostle Paul when he's defending morality and, and moral purity and sexual purity. This phrase, one flesh, what does it mean? Well, marriage is more than a contract. It's more than a certificate. 
It's more than just love. I'm going to say something controversial, but listen to me very carefully. Love doesn't make a marriage. Love may sustain a marriage. Absolutely. Love is a basis for marriage. Absolutely. But love is not marriage. Marriage is more than just love. If marriage was solely based on love, then why couldn't a parent marry a child if they loved them in that inordinate, perverted way? Or why couldn't somebody marry their pet? You see, the argument that people give today is that I believe that if two people love each other, they should be able to marry each other. But marriage isn't based solely on love. What is marriage? Marriage is a one-flesh relationship. That's what makes a marriage, when the two become one flesh. Uh, there's a book that I read, The Clash of Orthodoxies. And the doctor that wrote this book, and it's a book that I would, I would recommend to, uh, to, all of, to all of you, he talks about the definition of marriage, and I want to quote him now. Marriage is a two-in-one flesh communion of persons that is consummated and actualized by acts that are reproductive in type, whether or not they are reproductive in effect, or are motivated even in part by a desire to reproduce. The bodily union of spouses in marital acts is the biological matrix of their marriage as a multi-level relationship that is a relationship that unites persons at the bodily, emotional, dispositional, and spiritual levels of their being. Interpretation. The interpretation is marriage is a holy union that can only occur in God's definition in a monogamous heterosexual relationship between one man and one woman. You see, what consummates a marriage? It's not the wedding vows, it's not the certificate, it's not the ceremony. It's when that man and that woman on their wedding night become one flesh. At that moment, there is a bond of union and intimacy that is multi-level. In God's, when God's blessing is upon it, it's spiritual, it's physical, it's emotional, it's biological, it's physiological. It is the absolute closest union and most intimate encounter that a human being can have. And because it is so glorious in God's eyes, because it is so wonderful and so beautiful, and the purpose of which is to replenish the earth, to be fruitful, to multiply, to replenish the earth. Because the purpose of it is out of that love and out of that union, life is produced. A child is conceived and a child is born. God is so jealous over your, the gift of your sexuality that he has made prohibitions and restrictions and he's, he's drawn boundaries around it. Why? Because he loves you. Because he knows that he separated you in your mother's womb. He knows that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. 
He knows every, kit, intri- every intricate detail about your life, and he created you for a purpose, a divine purpose. He created you for a mission. He created you to know him, to love him, to follow him, and to serve him. And he created you to reach the full potential of what God created you to be. And because of that, the devil will assault and attack and undermine and try to twist and distort, uproot and upend the destiny that God has for each of our lives because all of us were created in the image and likeness of God. The Imago Dei, that's the devil's target to mar it, to corrupt it, to distort it, to twist it, to undermine it, and to destroy because he comes as a thief to steal, kill, and destroy. And God comes to your defense and my defense by giving us his holy commands to protect us and to keep us healthy and happy and holy. You see, really, same-sex marriage is a misnomer. It's, it's a fallacy. There is no such thing because marriage isn't a law. It's not a certificate. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. It's a covenant that can only be enacted, can only be consummated, can only become real when that one flesh experience occurs, and it can only happen between a man and a woman. Now, the Apostle Paul had to address issues like this in the early church. He wrote letters to the church at Corinth because there was a guy that was living with his mother-in-law. There, there was such sin in Corinth, it was so deviant and perverted that he had to address it, and he hit it head on in his, in his letters to the to church at Corinth. There were Christians in the church of Corinth that actually thought, listen, here's their, here, this was their, their philosophy. God takes care of my spiritual needs, but I go down to the temple prostitutes, and they take care of my physical needs. And Paul said, wait a minute, time out. You're now a Christian. You're no longer a pagan which means you no longer think like a pagan and you no longer act like a pagan. So the Apostle Paul, when he was defending morality and sexual sanity, he said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Your body, not just your soul, not just your spirit, but your body belongs to God now that you're a Christian. It's an instrument for righteousness, Paul talked about in Romans chapter 6. Before we surrender our life to Christ, our body became an instrument for unrighteousness, unrighteousness and for wicked purposes. We would do anything and be anything and try anything and experience anything. And we misuse this holy temple of God. But when we become Christians, we realize that our bodies are now members of Christ. So Paul's logic and his argument is this. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? The two, he says, quoting God, shall become one flesh. Paul said, how can that be? How can you practice this one fleshness? How can you bond Mary in one sense? yourself to a harlot. This ought not to be. Now, there are extrinsic goals to our sexuality, but there are also intrinsic goals to our sexuality. Namely, the intrinsic goal to, uh, or the extrinsic goal to our sexuality is the advancement of the human race. It's our survival. 
See, God's design, when he created Adam and, and then from Adam he created Eve and he performed the first wedding ceremony and he united them and he performed that first ceremony and then he gave them a mandate. He said, now go, be fruitful, multiply. In other words, he's saying, have plenty of kids and replenish the earth. Because that was God's design and plan, the enemy shows up in the garden. When he first comes on the scene, what's he doing? He's wanting to attack and undermine the marriage, undermine the family, and corrupt the seed, the godly seed of children that would be born into the world. Now, some people think, you know, Pastor Carl, it's now the law of the land. I know. And I was talking to Jay Sekulow right before our, our banquet a week ago in, in the green room, and, and I said, Jay, what about, what about same-sex marriage? He says, it's, it's law of the land now. And he said this, he said, elections have consequences. But what do we do now? How complicated do, have things become? Because you see, the church of Jesus Christ could never accept same-sex marriages. Either you're going to be loyal to Caesar or you're going to be loyal to Christ. And we have one Lord, and it's not Caesar, it's not the government. We have one Lord, it's Christ the Lord, his teaching and his commands. And here's how it complicates things. We love everybody, and so we love sinners. Our doors are open to whosoever will, let them come. And we want to preach the cross and preach Christ, and we want to give an invitation for you to come and surrender your life to Christ. And what you can't change, he can change, and he can change you from the inside out. But here's how it complicates things. Let's say a couple, a same-sex couple that are legally married now in our land, they come to our church, and they start hearing the gospel, and and they hear the truth, and the Holy Spirit convicts them. And they surrender their life to Christ. And now they get involved in our Next Steps program. And they're like, okay, what's our next step? And we have to say now, here's how complicated it's become. Because Jesus talked about how some circumstances in life can cause somebody to become twice a child of hell than they were before. It's a unique phrase that he applied to the Pharisees that... When the Pharisees would go land and see to make one convert, they actually made him twice a child of hell. In what sense? In this sense. When you buy into religion and you think that your religion can get you to heaven, you go from being a sinner to being doubly lost because now you're a religious person who thinks they're saved but they're not saved because you think your works can save you but only Christ can save you. So that religious person now has to give up their religion, admit they're a sinner, and then get saved. Sinners simply have to take one step towards the cross. Religious people have to take two steps to the cross because they have to first, get un they have to first realize they're lost and their religion can't save them. Only faith alone and Christ alone can save them. So here's what happens when a same-sex person starts coming to church and they get saved. We'll have to tell them your marriage is unlawful in the eyes of God. What? What gives you the right to say that to somebody? I don't have that right. It's not my right. It's what Scripture says. John the Baptist did that with Herod when he was, when, when he was married to his, his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. And that was a heterosexual marriage relationship. But that relationship was unlawful. And when John the Baptist said, your marriage is unlawful because it's not justified in the eyes of God, he got his head chopped off. That's how complicated things have now become. People say, well, I don't, believe, I don't believe that the state should even be involved in marriages and marriage licenses. Time out. The state has an obligation to pass laws for the greater good of society and for the survival of a civilization. 
So take, for example, somebody may think driving 100 miles an hour is moral. But the state has to intervene and say, it's not moral, it's dangerous, not only to you, but to those that may on, be on the road with you. So we're going to pass a law. We're going to legislate morality and how fast you can drive only 75 miles an hour. You see, a company may open up a warehouse and they may, they may feel that it's moral to allow their toxic fumes to go into the atmosphere and, and, and affect health and well-being of, of the citizens. They may think it's moral. But our, our government says, no, no, that's not moral, that's criminal, that's illegal, and we have laws that we passed against that. There are laws against polygamy, and there needs to be. There are laws against prostitution, and there needs to be. There are laws against child pornography, and there needs to be. So you see, the government does legislate morality. And for time and eternity, from the inception of our nation, there have been laws against this particular sin, but now we've decriminalized, decriminalized it, and now we've rewarded it by sanctioning it as marriage. So I've given you 12 passages in Scripture that clearly, clearly condemn homosexuality. There's no way that you can alter what God has already said in defense of how He made you and how jealous He is to protect the imago Dei, the image of God in, in all of each of you and all of us. So there are 12 verses of Scripture that are in your notes that I want you to have because I want you to be informed. I, I want you to have a biblical, rational, and logical defense to the faith, to know what you believe and why you believe and how, in a loving way, you defend what you believe. That on this issue, you cannot falter lest you become a part, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the great falling away, and as we talked about last weekend, the great deception of our time. So let's talk about how this reaches home in each of our lives. Let's talk about same-sex attraction. Pastor Carl, I know, I know well-meaning Christians that love Jesus, and yet they're attracted to the same sex. I know. That doesn't make you evil. That makes you human. It makes you a sinner like we all are. We all don't struggle with the same sin, but we all have some sin or sins that we struggle with. That's what it means being attached to this body of death, as Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This carnal, Adamic sinful nature that we are, we are bound to until corruption puts on incorruption, this mortal puts on immortality. We understand that salvation has three tenses, past, present, and future. I was saved. That's justification. I'm being saved. That's sanctification. I will one day be saved. That's glorification. And in this in-between stage from being justified to being glorified, we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so we have struggles. We with, whether it's with alcohol or pornography or drugs or a, 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 a number of things. We have to learn as Christians how to never rationalize or justify or, or make it seem as though God accepts it. We say it's sin and we confess it. And, it. and Peter one day said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Uh, seven times? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven, which is 490 times. Now, would, would, would Jesus give a, a ridiculous standard to Peter that he himself wouldn't keep? No. 
I don't care what you're struggling with, how many times you may succumb to it. If each time you sincerely turn to God in faith and repentance, how many know every time God will forgive you and God will cleanse you? And I just want you to know that as you and I live a life like that, we're going to continue to create distance between us and what we may be struggling with. But listen, you can be a Christian and have same-sex attraction feelings. It doesn't make you wrong. It doesn't make you evil. If you act on them, that becomes evil. That becomes sin. You see, same-sex attraction isn't a sin, but the act of homosexuality is a sin. And listen, becoming a homosexual, it's an acquired lifestyle. No one's born a homosexual. There is no such thing as a gay gene. There's events and things that can happen in a person's life that eventually bring them to that place where they begin to act out those tendencies. That's when it becomes a sin because all sin at the end of the day is a choice. But entering into the homosexual lifestyle isn't necessarily a choice. Sometimes it is an acquired lifestyle. Let's talk about that for, for a moment. When God created you, he knew what he was doing and he doesn't make any mistakes. He separated you in your mother's womb and you were fearfully and wonderfully made. And barring a medical condition, there are some, uh, there is a medical, medical condition that is excluded from what I'm about to say. But when God created you in your mother's womb, he created you either biologically a male or a female. And in the most, in the simplified world that we used to live in, when you were born, the doctors took one look at you and on the birth certificate said, boy or girl. Now things have become confused. Biologically, God created you based on your chromosomes. Either male or female created he them. In his infinite love, in his infinite wisdom. But then something happens. Not only are you a physical being, but you are a spiritual being. You have a spirit and a soul. And what can happen is, as you grow and mature, you cease to self-identify with your biological identity and you begin to self-identify with something contrary to your biological identity, and you begin to self-identify opposite of what your biological identity is. So I have some graphs that I want to help illustrate to, for you. Here's God's created order. A heterosexual gender identity is when a person, self, self, their, their self-identity matches their biological sex. So here's a boy. Biologically, he's a boy. Internally, on a soulish, spiritual level, he, as he grows, begins to self-identify as a boy, and that's reinforced by society, by his parents, by his relationships, on and on. At some point in time, this boy grows, and he becomes attracted because opposites attract to a girl. Now, initially, when they're young and innocent, boys don't like girls. They think they're gross. And girls think, you know, boys have cooties, right? But then biology kicks in, and all of a sudden there's this attraction. There's a story of a mountain man, uh, and, and this was in the uh, 1800s. He was a widower, and his two sons, their mother died at birth, and so they never saw their mother, and they lived out in an isolated mountain, mountainous area, and they had never seen another human being other than themselves and their father. And one day... Uh, under certain uh, special circumstances, the father had to take the boys to town. They were like 11 and 12 now. For the very first time, they went to town. They saw the town. They saw people. And they saw women, females, for the first time. 
And they go, Dad, they saw these young girls. And I said, Dad, what are those? And the dad said, those are geese. <laughs> and so when the father was leaving, uh, the, the, father, the father said, now, guys, do you want anything before we head back, back home? They said, yeah, we want a couple of those geese. So in, in, in a heterosexual gender identity, this individual identifies as a male matching their biological sex. But here's what happens when somebody struggles with the sin of homosexuality. Sexual confusion occurs when a person's self their self-identity internally is opposite of their bi biological sex. So if opposites attract, this young man, who is biologically a man, but self-identifies with his gender identity contrary to what his biological identity is, because confusion can set in to the best of people, begins to identify as a female and therefore is attracted to the same sex biologically, but the opposite sex in gender identity. And that happens also with young, with women. So homosexuality occurs when people are attracted to the biological sex that is the same as their own, but the opposite of their gender identity. Now, how does homosexuality develop in a young boy? Several entry points. A boy grows up, and his male identity he, is derived from his father. He bonds with the masculinity of his father. He identifies with that masculinity. And when a father gives his son the three A's, attention, affection, and affirmation, attention, affection, and affirmation, it helps that boy develop so that his self-identity matches his biological identity because he sees it played out in living color from the time he's conceived and as he grows in his home. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. A boy will bond differently with his mother. Actually, her femininity will reinforce the masculinity that he has been identifying with his father. All things being equal, in a healthy family environment, that is how a boy grows up in a normal environment, in a normal way, and embraces his biological sex and his internal identity, his masculinity, becoming a man that God's called him to be. What can go wrong is whenever a father is absent or a father is distant or a father is aloof or a father is passive or a father is abusive, either physically or emotionally, it could throw something off in that young boy in his, in his development to where he begins to overcompensate in bonding with his mother, fearing male interaction. As a result of that, he, more, he better associates with his mom's femininity than his father's masculinity. You say, well, Pastor Carl, I'm a single mom, and, 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 and what can be done for that? God can compensate. When your son has good, strong male role models, maybe an uncle or a grandfather or cousins or a coach or a teacher at school or spiritual leaders in a church. But it's so important for that man, that young boy's masculinity to be reinforced. Now, how does it occur, how does homosexuality occur in a, in a female? There are three entry points. The first is similar to that of a boy. At some point in a young girl's development, she decides psychologically that identifying with female gender is either unsafe or undesirable. So at some point, she rejects it. 
she might see women as weak or fear her own weakness which causes her to gravitate towards more masculine tendencies as a self-defense mechanism. The second entry point is once again some physiological, psychological, emotional, traumatic event such as sexual abuse. There's also what's called on high school campuses and college campuses is called LUG, L-U-G, and it stands lesbian until graduation. Because our society, and it breaks my heart, has made being gay being cool. They've equated being bisexual and gay being cool. Reinforced on Snapchat, reinforced social media, reinforced by Google, by Facebook, by Instagram, by Hollywood, by pop culture, by politicians, by preachers, by churches, by everyone, even parents, which is to me a form of, of uh, parental abuse, are reinforcing these confusing identities that young people who don't know any better struggle with. And instead of us coming in and supporting them with love and prayer and scriptural truth and teaching and help forming and, and developing their character, we allow them to get off course and they beyond the grace of, they're never beyond the grace of God, but without the grace of God will never find themselves back. So sometimes, because it's cool, girls begin to experiment. They say, well, I'll just do it while I'm in high school. I'll just do it while I'm in college. And then when I get out, then I'll, I'll go back to my heterosexual ways. But then they get trapped in that lifestyle. The third way is induction into that lifestyle. When a woman, a mother, a wife goes through a brutal breakup with their male partner, they're so devastated, they're so hurt, they're so angry, and they begin to classify all men in a certain light or a certain stereotype, and then they seek comfort in their female relationships. And they start off innocent enough, but then a female relationship can develop a codependency. And when that female relationship develops a codependency, boundaries are begin, you begin to cross boundaries. And the next thing you know, for purposes out of hurt and out of comfort, you find yourself in an unhealthy relationship. But here's the question. Is there help? Can I change? And the answer is, yes, you can. Paul said, writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he goes on. And such were some of you. Say that with me. And such were some of you. Continue to read with me. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There is not a single human being beyond the reach of God's grace and the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no sin too great that the blood of Jesus can't redeem and cleanse and bring forgiveness and bring healing. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've gone through, no matter what you've experienced, no matter the pain or the harm that's been done to you or the confusion that the world has thrown your way, there's a God in heaven, and He loves you. He loved you enough to bleed and to die and be buried and on the third day to be raised from the dead 
so that he can come into your life and change your life from the inside out and make you the man he's called you to be and make you the woman he's called you to be. That God deserves our praise and our surrender. I want you to stand to your feet. I want us to take a moment because I believe this is so important in a topic like this that we just release our praise. Lord, right now we just take every hurt, every pain, every stain, every sin, every wrong thing that's been done to us or every wrong thing that we've done to others and we lay them at your feet and we repent and we say, Lord, come now the power of your blood and cleanse us and wash us by the power of your Holy Spirit sanctify us thank you for your grace that where sin abounds grace does much more abound thank you that no one is beyond the reach of your love and your power and your grace and Lord I pray right now for family members who have loved ones that are involved in this lifestyle there is an answer his name is Jesus there is a way out his name is Jesus And I come against the lies of the enemy over their loved ones right now. And I rebuke the enemy in Jesus' name. And I thank you, Lord, for the scales falling from their eyes. They will come to the knowledge of the truth and surrender to Christ. And find hope, love, and healing in Jesus. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you can know his love, grace, and forgiveness. If you need to rededicate your life to him, pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us. Say it with your own mouth, mean it from your own heart. Dear God in heaven. I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God and receive His love, His grace, and His forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my Father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit and give me strength to live for you, serve you all the days of my life, beginning today for the rest of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family?